The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Richard Lee. As you dig into the soil, you get further down into the bedrock, and so it's like you're travelling through history. So you're starting off on the surface in the contemporary sphere. The deeper you go, you are literally time travelling. Elizabeth Jane Burnett there, who we'll be hearing from shortly when she joins Ian Mullaney to talk about how soil inspired both their works on place, family and loss. Plus, we'll be hearing about communication between worms. Yes, that's worms, which, as it turns out, has a lot more in common with the way we humans talk than you might think. But first, just last week, I spent a couple of nights in Dublin reading through 50 or so applications from writers for Arts Council bursaries. Each included a piece of sample writing. After the day's session, I retreated to my hotel room where, in a quite an extreme psychogeographic contrast, the novel I happened to be reading was by a Scot, Kirsty Gunn. It's called Caroline's Bikini and it's a playful postmodern story of unrequited love with lots of footnotes. In one of these, Gunn points out that there are moments where it seems to be reaching out towards a different kind of story. I open quotes, one established in the 19th century tradition of the English realist novel that was never of much interest to Scottish writers at any stage in the development of the genre in that country. The contemporary realist novel, she says, for the most part can go hang. Which set us thinking about regional differences. So we thought we'd speak to Ra Page, founder and CEO of Manchester-based Comma Press. So Ra, do you think being based outside London gives you the kind of perspective that lets you imagine telling the contemporary realist novel to go hang? It, it does to a certain extent. I think being based in the north or being based out of London gives you a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of breathing space, and it allows you to detach yourself to a certain extent from the kind of fast-paced, self-referential conversation that culture often has with itself as a kind of an adjunct of the media. And so does that give you different sorts of voices coming through? It allows us to take more risks as publishers. It allows us to invest in things which are not kind of market proven, are not tried and tested, they're not copycat books, they're not formula books. And it allows us to develop writers in a way which doesn't require them to be successful in their, you know, in their first strike, in their first book. So we will have authors who work with us over many, many books and develop their voices and develop their craft and develop different perspectives and different stories. And it's not essential that they are instantly successful, otherwise they're dropped. So that means that you get a different kind of engagement with the language, with, with the actual form of the words coming through. I mean, it made me think of, of Sinead Gleeson, who's going to be talking about her acclaimed new memoir, Constellations, in a later episode of this podcast. She's also edited two anthologies of short stories from Irish women writers and has a third coming in the pipeline. She talked about how literary Irishness goes beyond subject matter to impact on the way Irish writers use language itself. Let's listen to her now. What is Irishness? Is there an Irish short story? For a long time, I think Irish writers were writing against a post-colonialism in a way, a sort of a response to everything that happened to, to in Ireland, from colonisation to the famine to the loss of the Irish language. I mean, the way we speak Irish in Ireland is, is Hiberno-English. We don't, a lot of it is based on the sentence structure of the Irish language translated into English. And I think, if anything in Ireland, I think a lot of what Irishness in writing is about language. If you look at Joyce, if you look at the way Beckett constructs his sentences, uh, if you look at Edna O'Brien's experimentalism, which is then echoed on through in A Girl is a Half-Form Thing by Eamon 
McBride. I think the Irish, when I think about it, isn't about landscapes and the church and farms and those things. It's for me, it's about the breaking down and reconstruction of language because of a country, I think, that was colonised and has been trying to find its identity socially, politically, linguistically. And even today now with the new wave of, of writers, there's much more experimentation. There's much more globalisation of the writing. You, you, Sally Rooney is absolutely an Irish writer and yet the books don't aren't intrinsically Irish in many ways. So is Nicole Flattery. And I think that that idea of Irishness is one that has is changing and becoming something much more accelerated, uh, much more complex. As Ireland itself gets more multicultural, there's also a, a shift and a sort of a, a microchimerism, something I talk about in, in Constellations, where there's a sort of a trace is left behind. And I think Ireland's writers, instead of looking constantly inwards at the island of Ireland, are starting to look outwards after a long time of not doing that. So, Ra, does that strike a chord with you? It, it does with regard to Irish writing, but I think with, with Northern writing, there's less a question of language, it's more a question of identity. And when I say identity, I, I don't mean Northern identity. I, I mean the fact that the writers don't have an identity that's attached to a specific place. I think there's much more freedom of location, of movement, of landscape. There's much more freedom of influence uh, when it comes to writers based in the north and also publishers. I think there's, there's a lot more internationalism. There isn't a sense that they are speaking about this particular moment in Britishness or this particular moment in the UK identity. I think there's a lot more freedom from identity uh, when it comes to writing in the north. It's interesting because the Scottish modernism that Kirsty Gunn gestures at is also talking about sort of literary separatism, which goes back to the, I suppose it goes back to the Scottish Renaissance of the interwar years involving poets like Hugh McDermott. But it also goes forward to Ali Smith's unfolding seasonal quartet, which has just gone into its third season spring. But the north of England is still under the boot of London, isn't it? It's still colonised in a manner of speaking, Ra, isn't it? Does that make, is that partly what the difference is? I think there is a certain problem when it comes to the othering of the North. I think when journalists and when the industry kind of looks to the North, they expect it to be quintessentially Northern in one way or another. And there's only ever been one particular moment when Northernness was accepted and it wasn't kind of othered or exoticised. And that was in the kind of late 50s and early 60s when you had what we now call uh, the kitchen sink writers coming through. And I think it's a shame... That's writers like Sheila Delaney or David Storey. Exactly, Keith Waterhouse, Bill Norton, and even even the kind of Midlands writers like Alan Silito. They were all regarded as... They're all part of this kind of blossoming of writers from the regions, from the provinces, but they weren't... They weren't identified as such. There was more to them than their regional identity. Their actual narratives, their actual stories were regarded as, you know, essentially British stories. It was about form, wasn't it? Because the work, you know, the kitchen sink drama was about uh, seizing, well, taking the focus from the drawing room into the kitchen is one easy way of, <laughs> one easy way of putting it. Uh, but also people began to think of it as a working class form of literature. Yeah, but it was also, it wasn't kind of a separate uh, literary story that was being told. It was it was a story that spoke to everybody of, of any class, really. And I don't think it's so much, you could say it's, it's about form in that it's about location, about setting, as you say, drawing room to kitchen, but... It wasn't about the, the linguistic trickery so much, although there was, there's dialect and there's, uh, there's other things which play a role in that. It was more about the fact that it was about ordinary people. In this case, there were ordinary people from, from the north, but they were, 
you know, speaking to ordinary people everywhere. There's a strange paradox when you focus on a, a certain locality and you're, the more specific you are about a specific place, strangely and paradoxically, that makes it more universal to readers everywhere. And the opening up in the 50s and 60s to those kind of kitchen sink writers was about just saying, OK, we're not going to have a generic northern story, we're going to have a very specific story from these individual voices. And you don't get that so much anymore. And Kit Duval, the writer, has, has talked a lot about the, the absence of working-class writers these days. And I would say there's an absence of northern landscapes within the kind of mainstream commercial publishing. It just didn't come to anything, that movement. It didn't, it didn't become normalised. It didn't become the norm. And it was, it was a real shame that that happened. But, you know, as, as writers based in the north, you can't kind of pander to whatever identity those moments produce. You can't, you know, put a a fake flat cap on and pretend you've got a whippet at home. You you can't sort of live off the successes of those kinds of landscapes that northern writers have have celebrated and, and deified in the past. If Ted Hughes created a sense of the Yorkshire landscape, which is kind of iconic in British poetry. You can't then just try and recreate it or create a theme park to to Ted Hughes's literary landscape. You You have to start again from scratch each time. And that's the problem. You know, the market talks and works in terms of proven formula, in terms of repeating things which have worked in the past... And as writers, you can't do that if you want to be genuine and, and authentic. You can't just build on other people's landscapes and their, the grammar that they've established for their own work. You say that the specificity is a way that these writers reached a kind of universal connection with readers. There's the same thing working in the opposite direction for publishers like yourselves who are based outside London that your perspective from a little bit outside that London bubble gives you the, the chance to be more international in your publishing. Absolutely. Uh, being based in the north, are, you know, in, in very practical terms, our overheads are lower, our cost of living is much, much lower. We, we don't need each book to be as great a success as London publishers do. So we can take risks with that. And we can have more faith in writers' specificity. They, we can have more trust in that. Their authentic telling of their story will reach, eventually, will reach readers who will believe and invest in their authenticity. Interesting a parallel between that and and some of the writing that's coming out of Ireland, actually, like, for example, Anna Burns's Milkman, which won the Booker Prize, or Emma McBride's Girl of a Half-Form Thing, which are incredibly specific. And they, I think they absolutely meet that test of becoming international through their specificity. And, you know, you just think, well, Beckett was international, wasn't he? He was Irish and French. <laughs> yeah. And modernism is a, is a pan-European movement. Absolutely. And the short story, which is our particular specialism, is a profoundly international form. The way it moves from one writer to another and influences kind of key exponents of the form in its early years was was incredibly international. It moved very, very fast uh, from one continent, one language to another. And also the short story is able to kind of gather up its context and pack it into a suitcase, squeeze it into uh, a suitcase and travel much more than a, a novel is. So about 60% of what Comma Press does is commissioning new translations and often commissioning new work in other languages from all different parts of the world. And we're able to do that, as I say, because the short story is so portable. It just travels so much lighter. And readers can find themselves in the context which these stories set up, in the landscapes which they create. 
Are there particular writers that we should be reading that you would recommend? Absolutely. Um, there's writers like Hassan Blassim who have kind of redefined the kind of post-war and the refugee experience, really, uh, in, in literature. wrote uh, two collections of short stories. The first one was called The Madman of Freedom Square and the second one was called The Iraqi Christ. And Hassan Blassim is a, a refugee from Iraq who made his way across Europe illegally as an illegal refugee. Uh, he was originally trained as a filmmaker and his short stories are uh, incredibly filmic and, and cinematic and visual. He wrote a short story for us as well, as part of one of our short fiction projects. He did indeed. And he's based in Finland, and because of the kind of more welcoming policy of Scandinavian countries, there's a lot of refugees that have come from Iraq and Libya and Syria have ended up in, in Scandinavia, and a lot of them are writers. So there's some very, very interesting writing coming from Scandinavia, coming from those migrant and refugee communities. And are there writers who are based in your region, writers based around Manchester that we should be reading as well? Yes, uh, absolutely. There's writers like uh, Michelle Green, who is a Canadian-British writer based in Manchester, spent most of her life in Manchester, who has written a collection of short stories about the war in Darfur. She worked with a humanitarian aid agency in Darfur and kind of writes about her experiences there. There's, uh, There's David Constantine, who is originally from Salford, who is a kind of a master of the short form and also an acclaimed poet. Uh, He has a new collection coming out from us later in the year called The Dressing Up Box. There's lots and lots and lots of interesting writers coming from different forms, whether it's horror, science fiction, new weird literary fiction. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of voices bubbling up in the north, but also through northern publishers, and they may be from all over the world. Thanks very much, Ra. We'll be digging even deeper into regional soils after this. The Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to The Guardian Briefing. Elizabeth Jane Burnett is a writer of English and Kenyan heritage who explores a family connection with Devon, stretching back hundreds of years in her memoir, The Grassling. Ian Mullaney's collection of essays, Minor Monuments, examines a family that has been rooted for generations in the same spot as well. But in this case, it's the Irish Midlands. So, Richard, why did you decide to bring these two authors together? Well, they're very different projects in very different places, but sprung in some sense from the same impulse. Uh, Burnett grew up in the village of Ide in Devon. Uh, she's an, an eco-poet and academic. She's, she published her first collection of poetry, Swims, in 2017, where she explores free swimming in bits of England and Wales all, all across the country. She's also a lecturer in creative writing at Newnham University in Birmingham. Whereas Mullaney grew up in County Offaly. He trained as a sound engineer and is now the online editor for Stinging Fly in Dublin. Which, incidentally, is the, is the engine house of most of the new Irish fiction that I was reading last week in Dublin. Absolutely. Nicole Flattery, again, who's appearing on this podcast as well, is a Stinging Fly author. And uh, Sally Rooney edits the Stinging Fly. So it's, a, it's an amazing kind of powerhouse at the moment. Both Burnett and Mullaney had a similar projects to explore the places where they grew up, which became all the more urgent because of an illness. 
Burnett's father Donald died in 2017 and Mulaney's grandfather John Joe struggled with Alzheimer's during the last few years of his life. So these similar projects, but rooted in different places, led them to take very different approaches. Uh, Mulaney's essays, they circle around ideas of sound and fidelity, the exotic and even machine intelligence. Whereas Burnett she finds herself tramping through fields and up hills and goes looking in archives for traces of her, her family history and on the trail of the book that her father published about the parish, the parish of Ide. And she also even rolls around in fields to literally make a kind of connection with the earth. It's an extraordinary kind of performance. She's a performance poet, of course. So when they came to the studio, I began by asking Elizabeth Jane why she'd made the pivot from poetry into a memoir rooted in the soil of Devon. Well, I was looking at soil because it was the United Nations International Year of the Soil. I was working a little bit with an art centre down in Devon, the Contemporary Centre for Contemporary Art and the Natural World. And they did a fantastic project called Soil Cultures. And we were looking at the importance of soil. And I was approaching that from a writing point of view. I was writing about soil. Writing poems, writing prose. Sort of writing about what it meant to me in prose with a view to seeing where that would lead creatively. So um, CCNW is is an arts organisation. So I was thinking it might turn into an exhibition of work. Um, So I've produced poetry, which then goes on the wall before and commissioned other artists to do that. So I was thinking about it from that point of view. But then I was visiting home regularly because my father was unwell. And so I was writing just in a very journalistic way at that time about those visits home and the particular soil where I grew up. And eventually the two projects kind of came together. So it was kind of direct response in some sense to your your father's illness. Yes, yes. Did your father's illness make you aware of the kind of fragility of the connection which stretches back in your in your family for generations did it make you aware of the fragility of that yeah absolutely um when you have somebody who you know whose days are limited obviously you want to get from them exactly the experiences that they've had and understand you know the life that they've led and for my father going back and generations on his side there were farmers in Devon and so I became very aware of that link and wanting to learn from him you know what his experiences of the soil were what his fathers and fathers before him were and my father was a historian as well so he had actually researched the family history but also the history of the place so he had published a history of Ede um, the village that he grew up in so these were sort of long conversations I had with my father as a way of understanding his experiences you know, while I still could. Because as you were, in fact, walking through the landscape, you were walking actually in the footsteps of your great-great-grandfather, Grandfather yes, Wills. I was, and that's an interesting story because I had read um, the history that my father wrote and this character appeared as this kind of wayward gentleman who went through whatever land he wanted, regardless of ownership, made his own styles, which still exist today, um, through, through his walking out. stick, beating them back and actually um, forming the styles there to be the quickest route um, to get from farm to farm because he was working as a farm labourer. He was discovered drunk in ditches, having consumed a bit too much cider on his way back from work. That's in the book as well. And I just thought, oh, this is a really interesting character. I need to kind of follow some of those walks. And then I mentioned this to my father and he said, oh, you mean your grandfather Wills, your, your, your great, great, great grandfather. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> and, and the family stretches even further back. Those yes. archers were rewarded with land for their part in the Battle of Hastings. That's right. So it has quite a different kind of history, um, and that's on my grandmother's side. 
And that's interesting too, because I had visited some of the land that they used to own in Devon as a child. And there's this particular field that features in the grassling called Ten Acre Field. And I visited there as a child and just felt a huge sense of connection to that place. And I wanted to visit again once I'd learnt um, that the family were, you know, from part of that area. And then I learned that they actually did used to own that particular field that I'd felt this moment of connection. Spooky moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how about you, Ian? Was your collection of essays exploring your own family's connection with the Irish Midlands, was that spurred partly by the, the illness and death of your grandfather, John Joe? Yeah, definitely. It probably started even before I was fully aware of how ill he was or was going to be, certainly. My grandfather had Alzheimer's, so it's hard to tell exactly how long things are going to take or how quick or slow they and it's they might go. A, a, the beginning of something is very difficult to establish. Yeah, it's you You just kind of, I, I felt I had a, a sort of vague sense I wanted to do something. I didn't really know what that was going to be and it took a, quite a long time for it to turn into something that looked anything like a book. Um, <laughs> it, it started off with music and with recording and with sound and later on photography and images and stuff like that and uh, gradually it filtered down to just being words, basically. Oh, because after a while, you began recording your grandfather's voice, didn't you? I wonder if we might, might hear a little bit about that now from the book. Yeah, sure. During the final two or three years of his life, I made many surreptitious recordings of John Joe as he sat by the fire in their kitchen. He was in the process of forgetting almost everything he'd ever known. He was fading out of the world, and I began to grieve long before the death was final. I wanted to record whatever it was he might say before it was too late. Not because what he had to say was particularly significant or even memorable, but because no one would ever say anything like it again. It occurred to me that while there would be many pictures of him from throughout his life, there would be very few recordings of his voice. I find it much harder to recall a voice I haven't heard in years than a face I haven't seen. Roland Barth wrote in the opening pages of his morning diary, that his mother's voice, the very texture of memory, had gone silent in his mind. He called it a localised deafness. The recordings I made of John Joe are not good. I made them mostly on my phone because I didn't want anyone to know I was making them. I left the phone down wherever, paid it no heed. The results are quiet and hiss-filled, but I think no less eloquent or compelling for that. The earlier recordings are filled with chat. Near the end, Voices emerge only intermittently from the encroaching silence of the kitchen. He was losing his voice along with his memories. The words barely make it out of his throat. Regardless of their fidelity, the recordings suggest a depth, a duration and a movement to what photographs of him have frozen flat and static. A person's face is not exactly still, but it is less dynamic and in a way less personal than their voice. A photograph of a person who has since died does not make them seem alive again but a recording of their voice can be enough to recall them to the room, to make their presence felt. My favourite recordings are those where John Joe sings along with the radio. He sang old songs, the songs all old people know. He sang Carrick Fergus. He sang Eileen McMahon. He sang I'll Be Your Sweetheart. He sang songs they'd later play at his funeral, songs like The Rocks of Bonn. He had forgotten most of everything, but scraps of melody remained. They were hidden in that part of the brain where treasures are kept, alongside the name of his wife, Kathleen. You say that it began as a series of recordings, recordings of the bog as well as your grandfather and also photographs. Yeah. Um, 
When did it become clear to you that you needed more than that? You needed to to turn to writing. Um, it took a couple of years, really. I guess the problem, or one of the problems with field recording and, and with recording, say, atmosphere and, and trying to do something purely atmospheric, essentially, is that you can't say directly what you think. Uh, you have to rely on people to pick up the atmosphere of what you are trying to capture. And I realized that the atmosphere there is not different from anywhere else. It's not special in any particular way. It's just significant to me. And in order to articulate that sense of significance, I needed to do it in a way that was more direct. And words seemed like the most direct way to do that. And was it also partly to have something solid, something solid to set against the disappearances of Alzheimer's? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, the book is absolutely preoccupied with different methods of recording. And I would see writing as just one method of, of recording. Each have their affordances, each have their sort of limits. It's nice in a way with a book that you can you can share it. You know, I can give this to other people in my family and they can read it and they can understand what I was thinking about at that time. I might not have been able to articulate that at the time, but now when we all have a little bit of distance from it, it's nice to be able to say, well, this is actually what I was thinking or what I think about it now that I have a bit of time to figure it out. I think that's what the essay particularly is really good at. It allows you to just show your thinking, show your work. And was part of the attraction of a collection of essays also that it's kind of patchwork form? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think there's a lot of... It would be easy to see how you could make a novel out of this story, I think. I think there are a lot of Irish novels and probably a lot of British novels as well that are of similar themes and written about people at a similar age and similar relationships. But I think doing it this way as a collection of essays kind of took the focus off the sense of maybe a chronological narrative and just put it on what I was thinking and what was feeding into what I was thinking and allowed me to reach out beyond that particular space. And also a way of replicating the particular dissolutions of Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, the, there are gaps and, and there are gaps that don't get filled in, basically, and that's, that's life, particularly when you are losing your memories. You, don't, you can't patch things back together the way they used to be. You're also even further, perhaps, from a straightforward chronological family history, aren't you, Elizabeth Jane, recording your observations and experiments to get physically closer to the ground. Maybe we could hear one of those experiments now. As I walk into the hill's incline, I approach its brow. Where does the field become a hill? Where does the head become the spine? Where is the neck of the hill? Flat becomes curved, spine ricochets into ribs, erupts into breast. I stroke the field, pulling fingers through grass like hair. The soft clover, spider, beetles, the small button mushrooms, the open dandelions. Breast, stroke. I start field swimming. Again, words come as poems. Breast stroking, nettling, dandelunging, grassling. Pulling my fingers through, my mouth fills with grass, my toes dig in to propel me. I feel my internal circuitry change. I am plant as well as animal. My blood transports oxygen. My chlorophyll produces it. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus surge along tissue, torso calm to my blades. Blood blends magnesium as well as iron. I am grass made flesh, grassling. 
With no malleable water to move through, only fixed ground, I have to use my body more. The push comes from the toes, which are rooted along my calm to the knees, which repeat the movement, only larger and deeper. Leaved arms sweep out, gathering and spreading wetness and sweetness. The words get tangled, sweatness and spreetness, weeding and sweeting, all knotting and breathing in and over the tongue. Once more, I need the earth, wondering about its energies. How churches were doused and located on ley lines of supposedly beneficial energies. If the land, like the body, can hold a trauma, I think of where he lies across the fields. It can also, perhaps, hold a healing. I always feel better here, always. When I pull up from the field, it is as if from a spa, skin tingles with life, I breathe it all in, the moment and the capture of the moment. The moment where I am closer to my father through being in a space that he has been in, a space where his father has been in, and his father too. And I will tell him about the field, though not the rolling and spinning and swimming, but I needed all that to get in, to get close enough to what is here, to what it feels and means to be here. By being here, I become part of his story. And through a shared space and shared narrative, I write myself into him. So how does swimming in a field or trilling like a blackbird or listing everything you see that's yellow on a journey from Birmingham to Devon, how does that help you to, to, to get you closer, to get you into the space, to help you understand your links with the ground beneath your feet? Well, I think the thing about soil is that it's alive. You know, it's full of these living organisms. So when you come to a particular place, I'm not just interested in myself in that place, but I'm interested in what that place is. Who else is in this space with me? What interactions can I have with them? So if I'm standing in a field, I'm wondering who I'm standing over and how I'm standing over. And can I move in a way that is gentler to them? So I ask somewhere in the grassling, I ask of the soil, you know, are there particular animals that you like that treat you well and softly? And I think of that. So I was tumbling through the field um, and I was replicating some worm movements as well, the way that they writhe and coil. I began to think about the worm speaking a lot. So there is actually a field called worm linguistics where studies are being done into how worms communicate. And it's through uh, a chemical syntax which shares some properties with the way that we speak and construct sentences. So there is in the grassling a soil voice which is based upon that idea of a worm linguistics where words repeat and then change in their meaning and a sentence sort of accumulates in that way. Because I mean you also I mean, you become a buzzard almost or mm. you, you nestle in the soil. I mean you, how does this help you to, to get connected? So I think with the, the soil it was also understanding what actually the soil is so as well as the organisms in there the fact that it is rock as well broken down and so this idea of rock gives you a sense of history and there is the very physical depth so as you dig into the soil you get further down into the bedrock and so it's like you're traveling through history so you're starting off on the surface in the contemporary sphere the deeper you go you are literally time traveling and so the idea of sort of burrowing into the soil and becoming this grassling where I was rooted in my heels in the earth and then digging and sort of physically being part of the soil 
was a way of thinking through that idea of history as well, which was something that obviously I was exploring with my father's history and the sense of ancestry going back with him. There's also a kind of different sort of recording on the page as well. I mean, you were speaking about the worm's voice mm. to a certain extent. There's also an attempt to trill like a robin that you try to capture with mm. subscript and superscript letters. Is that a way of trying to replicate that experience for the reader on the page? Yes, it is. And it's a way of opening up the voices on the page as well. I think, you know, with nature writing, I'm really interested in bringing other than human voices into that kind of writing. So, you know, we're, we're sort of a lot of talk around at the moment about bringing more diverse voices into nature writing. But I think that extends, you know, beyond ideas of identity of the human, but to other than human voices as well. And so it was really important to me that it wasn't just me droning on about my personal experience, but there were other voices in there that were taken from the way that plants and organisms in the soil do communicate. So there's a sort of tree voice in there as well, which is based upon recordings of uh, water moving through tree trunks and its actual transcriptions of tree recordings. So it's a nice link to the sound recordings, perhaps, that Ian was talking about there as well. Again, that sense of bringing the other than human into the page. The landscape around you seems so steady and so permanent, but nevertheless, it's always on the move. Is nature writing always unavoidably now caught up in the clear and present danger of climate change? I don't think it's unavoidably so. There's a lot of nature writing, I'd say, that still acts as if it doesn't exist. But I think it's increasingly hard to do that and to have these very sort of beautiful depictions of nature that do leave out the more troubled areas. So, you know, we talk about new nature writing now as being the movement that really does foreground some of those more environmentalist concerns. So there is a lot of writing that that is bringing that in. But I think the way that we write about these things is interesting. I think not just presenting the stark facts, but doing something a little bit more emotive, but also that might at moments sort of challenge you cognitively so there are like with the worm and the soil voice for instance you have to spend some time with that to just try because and the way the words the, are laid out on the yeah, page the kind of syntax mm. the non-linearity of it it does make your mind work in a different way and I think we do need to make our minds work in a different way if we're going to do anything to tackle climate change. And we need to also think and reimagine our relationships with the other than human and re-get that sense of, or sort of get the sense of kinship with the other than human if we're going to really make any meaningful changes there. Mm, watching the cabbage whites pollinating the sweet peas, you suggest it's a strange sensation to be watching something coming to an end. It's a, it's a kind of mournful note that sounds through minor monuments as well, Ian. But how does the act of watching, of recording a home that's thinning out, how does that change the connection with the place where you're from? That's a, it's a huge question. There's a sense maybe, a wishful thinking maybe, that to observe is and to record and to, ma to make something of it is in some way to help preserve or save or... A kind uh, of rescue. Yeah, a rescue. And I don't, I, for me, it's not at all. There is, the book isn't going to make that place any... Mm. Uh, busier or more social or easier to live in. It's just a book. So um, the the issues that places like where I grew up, a remote place, the issues th that are there are are not going away. They're they're political and they're economical and they're they're social. And 
it can look pretty to people. It can it, it can be slightly exotic to people, and and that's maybe something that I was constantly aware of of trying to present this as just a this is normal life, and this is not something to be sort of exoticized, exoticized yeah. or visited. Uh, like didn't want it to be a sort of helicopter journalism style thing where people would just drop in for a little bit and then leave again. And I try to make clear that this is ongoing for people. This is not just there to be visited. But does the act of making a book, the act of writing about it, does that change your relationship to the to the events, the people, the place that you describe? Yeah, even as you, even as those events are happening, because it would be dishonest to say that I wasn't aware at the time that I was recording these things, that I was, you know, filing them away for myself, going, oh, that could be good, or I could I could use that, and you know, that's even in, in pretty desperate situations and uh, unhappy situations you're thinking this and you know that makes you question uh what exactly you're doing as a person really uh it's ambiguous the writer's role or the recordist's role in that situation and i wouldn't want to uh, absolve myself of any of the moral issues that go along with that it is the fact that you i mean you write that uh, that the further you've gone into the job of writing about one family in one place the greater the distance has grown between me and all of that is that distance is that an inevitable part and in some sense a sign of success of the project yeah, I think so. Yeah, it doesn't lend a great deal of intimacy. It makes you feel more separate. And now to have this book as a finished product and, and to read it out for people and to show it to people only makes those events more surreal. More remote. Yeah, more remote. Yeah. You're, you're constantly aware of the fact that you've turned them into something that is not quite what they were, which is not to say that the accounts are inaccurate in any way, but they were events that stood by themselves and now they are events that are in my narrative and I think that's there's a conflict there or an ambiguity there that it's just impossible to escape You also write about being caught between being here and yet not here Elizabeth Jane it's an in-between state that's complicated further by your dual heritage do you think the question are you local that you get asked in the Mm -hmm. library do you think that question can depend on something as banal as the colour of your skin Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, being of mixed heritage, um, the sense of capturing these experiences of my father was, in a sense, you know, capturing a white tradition and a white history. My mother also features in the book. Um, She has a few comedic moments. That's just (laughs) my mother's personality. Um, Because she's from Kenya. She is from Kenya. Um, I'd say... That's something that they shared. My mother and my father is a, a sort of complete disinterest in the book um, and <laughs> a sense of, you know, what on earth are you, are you doing? Or she's up to her nonsense again. And so a couple of these discussions came into the book. But certainly with my father, I was aware of the difference in our experiences. My father, who wrote this history of Eid, and part of his methodology would be knocking on doors and getting this anecdotal experiences from people that lived in particular places. And if I was to do that, my experience was not always of welcome. And so that was a difference that um, I was, you know, certainly aware of. But it was important for me to get that sense of the the sort of personal history, the family history from my father's side while I still could, while I could get that direct knowledge. Ian, you said that the process of writing made things seem more remote. How about for you, Elizabeth Jane? Did the process of writing this book, does it make it make your connection stronger or does it make you feel further away? Oh, I definitely felt a stronger, a stronger connection and closer. I think 
from those immersive experiences um, being really deeply embedded in the landscape and the different organisms, all those exchanges going on. Um, and then the conversations with my father, who also had conditions that involved sort of memory loss as well. And so um, talking about these fields, that was something that he remembered very strongly. So it, in terms of conversation, it would be an easy conversation for him. It would be a place that he enjoyed returning to himself to discuss. And so, yeah, I felt that connection with him became stronger through talking about the writing process and my visits to the fields. It was much more of a, a deep connection, you know, just on that personal father to daughter relationship as well. And the, the fact of the book appearing in the world as well, does that make your connection solid? Yeah, I mean, it's nice. I do, you know, quote from his book and I, I like that sense of legacy for his writing so that he's he's going on in that sense. And yes, there is a kind of solid material manifestation of his links to the soil, my links to the soil, and that's preserved. So, yeah. Well, I shall never look at or indeed converse with worms in quite the same way again, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> with thanks to Elizabeth Jane Burnett and Ian Mullaney. Minor Monuments is with Tramp Press and The Grassling is with Alan Lane. Both are out now. In next week's podcast, we'll hear from Nicole Flattery about the damaged women floating through her collection of short stories, Show Them a Good Time. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.